Wow, wow. I'm uh, intimidated. Uh, I am just so blessed to see so many of you here. Thank you for coming. Uh, I know some of you come from a long way, and I don't mean Stanford, Connecticut. I know some of you came from Stanford, you're like, hey, man, we're coming from Stanford. I, actually, I appreciate, particularly at this time of year, that you would make your way in from Fairfield County, uh, or that you even would admit to living in a place like Fairfield County. Uh, I got out of there a long time ago. Uh, but there are people here, I'm not kidding, I want to just say this because I met them in the reception, from other parts of the country who flew here for this event. If you're from Kentucky, would you raise your hand? There we go. That's, they get the gold, you get the Golden Hubcap Award. That is unbelievable, unbelievable. There's somebody from California who asked you. Are you from California? Really? Well, since I didn't meet you at the reception, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. No, seriously, it means so much to me. Thank you for, for coming and being a part of this. Um, I can see by the wreaths that the Christmas season has fallen upon us. It seems everywhere I go, I realize that the Christmas season has fallen upon us like an obese man, unsteady on his feet. You'll notice that's a negative image. I find it, I find it annoying that uh, the Christmas season is falling on us earlier and earlier every year. I resent it. And if you're okay with it, I resent you. Um, You may notice that I'm wearing neither green nor red. And this is uh, my gentle way of flipping the bird to those people who think the moment you cut the turkey, you should scramble to the chimney, scramble up the chimney and try to drag Santa down from the North Pole. Uh, I think that's uh, it's unnecessary, and I just I just wanted to say that. So, happy holidays. Um, I uh, there's so much I want to say. Uh, first of all, there's so many friends here, uh, old friends, new friends. It's just a delight to see you, and it's frustrating not to be able to connect uh, with uh, with everyone. So forgive me if I don't get to talk to you. Um, I should say this now, is that when this is all over, uh, if you'd like uh, to get a book, uh, Oz's books are, are, are there. We will be here at least for a few minutes uh, to sign books and say hello before we go to the, to the patrons' dinner, uh, which is very expensive. Um, <laughs> when people ask me what Socrates in the City is about, uh, I always say it's about asking the big questions. And some of you are familiar with Socrates over the years. Um, I, I, um, we've always, uh, because I'm Greek, I just have a thing for Socrates. But also Socrates, he asked questions and he believed, evidently, that there was this thing called the truth and that you might make your way toward it, Right? Now, I don't know about you, but I expect to see Socrates in hell. Just kidding. Uh, Socrates was a man who really believed, and, you know, many of the Greek philosophers did not all, but they they believed in this concept of truth that it's worth pursuing. Uh, And that's really a big part of what we try to do here. And so we have a vast, uh, eclectic array of... um, of guests. Uh, we have had, actually, this is the, la- this marks the last, uh, event of the, of this year, uh, as you know. We've had an extraordinary 
season, uh, we've had astronauts and non-astronauts, <laughs> and pretty much everybody in between. And if you think about that, that's not logically possible. Yeah. But we, we had Charlie Duke, uh, who was um, our, our first guest this year, who walked on the moon 50 years ago. Um, and uh, to me, when you talk to somebody who's walked on the moon, it inevitably leads to think about the transcendent, the very idea that human beings did that. Um, we had Andrew Claven. We had we, – oh, we did an event in Houston with Dr. James Tour. I don't think any of you were at that event Shame on you for not making an effort. They came from Kentucky. They came from California. Come on. You could have been there. You could have been there. You missed it. We're never putting it online. Um, but uh, we, and most recently, we had uh, David Berlinski uh, here, who, who came from Paris to be with us. That was, that was extraordinary. I have to tell you uh, about my guest, our guest for the evening. It's Oz Guinness, uh, uh, whom some of you know. Uh, Oz was born in China. Uh, and educated in England. He's the author of 30 books. Uh, he describes himself or is described uh, as a passionate uh, advocate of freedom of religion and conscience for people of all faiths. Um, but I have to say, this is a particularly special Socrates in the City event because without Oz Guinness, Socrates in the City would have never come into being. That is a fact. There's no hyperbole there. Uh, in 2000, when we began thinking about doing this, it was Oz who really helped me formulate um, the, just the concept and, and, and what this would be. Uh, and it, Oz actually uh, was our speaker in December of 2000, which suddenly is 22 years ago. Uh, and I vowed that I would never have him back. Uh, and I broke that vow time and time again, and again today I'm breaking that vow. Um, although I, I, I must say that uh, Oz was the, the, the speaker, for the, I think, for the first four or five events we did, really helped get this uh, off the ground. So it's, it's particularly special to me that he's with us today, 22 years after, uh, I, I can't even believe it, 20, can, is this possible? We was just kids, remember? Um, in any event, I also have to say, and I wouldn't say this if Oz were in the room. Is he? He's, yeah, he's not here yet. Uh, I wouldn't say this if he were in the room. But Oz Guinness has been a guiding light in my life. There has been so much about what he has said uh, and written that has shaped my view of things in general. Um, and I, I, you know, people think that uh, I grew up knowing about William Wilberforce. That's not true. Uh, I heard of him from my friend and hero Chuck Colson and from my friend and hero Oz Guinness. And that and many other things uh, Oz has contributed um, to my life. My book, If You Can Keep It, some of you are familiar with that book, that never would have come into existence if not for Oz Guinness. And so tonight, the conversation we're going to have, it's, it's a similar kind of thing where when I read his most recent books, which are right here, I just thought it's almost like I'm reading this, and I'm almost going mad as I'm reading it, because it feels so seminal and so important, and I can't believe I didn't quite understand it until now when I'm reading it. Uh, and 
So what we're going to discuss tonight is very important. But my book, if you can keep it, I, I really just, I had that experience with a couple of uh, Oz's previous books. And I thought, this is so important, I need to write about it. I need to rip off Oz's work. <laughs> and uh, I dedicated that book to Oz uh, because I figured he's less likely to sue me. And so far, <laughs> so far, so good. So far, so good. Um, there, I said, what is... Uh, Socrates in the city about we ask the big questions and the the breadth of topics is pretty broad you know I think that if you are looking and trying to figure out what it is that we do very few people would realize it's probably a UFO cult uh, we, we try to keep it uh, we try to keep it quiet but ultimately that's what it's about but we do ask the the big questions um, I did in uh, a Socrates city event I think about 21 years ago with Thomas Howard uh, some of you know his book, Chance of the Dance. And in that book, the case that he makes, it's related to what we're doing here, is that everything points to God. Everything points to truth. All the beauty in the universe and the goodness and all these things. And so it doesn't really matter what direction you go in. You can just sort of, you know, explore anything. And eventually it's sort of pointing you to the truth uh, in the universe. And so his book is called Chance of the Dance. And I... Uh, he, he spoke for us before we were even taping these, probably probably 21 years ago. But then more recently, I interviewed him um, uh, at his home on the North Shore of Boston. And I recommend that book and that conversation because in some ways, it's a distillation of what it is uh, that we do here. Um, I think I mentioned I read Oz's two most recent books. I think they're the most recent. I read them recently. Um, and it really was uh, kind of an amazing experience. And I was just so excited uh, that I'm going to get to talk to him about those books tonight and that you get to hear that conversation. Because the ideas in these books, it's, it's not as though they're not in any of his other books. But in some ways, uh, these books sum up a few basic um, ideas. One of them is called Zero Hour America. The other is the Magna Carta of Humanity. And what we don't get to cover in the conversation tonight, we will cover on my radio program tomorrow. Uh, and so um, without further ado, please give a warm Socrates round of applause to my friend and guest, Oz Guinness. Hello. Hi, Welcome. I'm the straight man. Yeah. No, this is... Uh, the, the information in these books, uh, Oz, it's pretty straight. It's uh, not a lot of jokes in these books, i got to tell you. Um, but they were, they're very important. And so what most people don't know is how you came to care about the things you care about. So why don't we start there? Why don't you... Um, Tell us your story, where you were born, and how you came to be who you are before we get into the ideas themselves. Well, as it turned out, I've become someone as an admirer of this country, wrestling with the meaning and where America is for a long time. As Eric knows, I was born from a long line of Irish brewers, my grandfather was one of the first doctors, Western doctors, in China. 
And he actually treated the last emperor, if you saw that film, and the empress dowager, Sir Xi. My parents were both born in China, and I and my two brothers were born in China. I was born there in World War II. When the Japanese army invaded, 17 million were killed. And to stop them, the Chinese flooded the Yellow River and overnight killed 900,000 of their own people without warning. And we lived in an area, my mother was a surgeon, where five million died in three months in a plague, a famine. And then we moved to Nanjing, Nanjing today, Nanking then. It was the capital of so-called free China. So I well remember the day in January 49 when my dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek's abandoned the city and we're at the mercy of the Red Army. As how, how old were you? When... I was seven then, and we lived two years under the reign of terror. So when you were seven, your father shared this with you, because some people wouldn't share this with a seven-year-old, but you were able, obviously, oh, to I mean, handle... You, you couldn't avoid it. You couldn't avoid it. I mean, father's friends in prison, some of them executed, they were dragged off. My father was tried by the communists, it was... A sham trial fell apart. But you could feel the fear in the area for two years. Then they were allowed to send me home. Now, I say all that because, on the one hand, that was my first experience at school and with the American embassy, Americans everywhere. And so I became friends with many Americans, but also a very realistic crash course in the menace and the deadliness of Marxism. Uh, it was years later, when I was 26, I came over here as a tourist, six weeks. Harvard, Berkeley, Yale, uh, Stanford. I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement in 64. Listened to Fillmore West, great, the Jefferson Airplane, and Grace Slick. And in, in seeing what was happening in 68, if any of you are old enough to remember, a hundred American cities were ablaze. Martin Luther King assassinated, Senator Kennedy assassinated. I came back to Europe realizing what was happening here was significant for America, of course, for the world. And I gave some very stumbling lectures back in Europe on the significance of the 60s that became my first book. Were you, were, you were a grad beginning. student at that time? What? Were you a graduate student at that time? Uh, I, I, um, I graduated from college, but no more. And yet you're giving lectures. I'm well, impressed. No, I said stumbling simple yes, lectures. Of course. Trying to explain, of course, stumbling. Explaining, yeah. trying to explain what was happening. Right. You know, later I worked for the BBC, and we, we did a documentary on what was behind President Reagan's election. And uh, one of the high-ups in the BBC asked me to give a report of that, and I did. He was fascinated, and that became another book. So I eventually plunged in. But we're in this country. I was doing research in 84 with Jenny and CJ, who was then three. And it was the only time in my life when I had a call from the Lord, heard his voice audibly. And since then, we've thrown ourselves into trying to understand what's happening in this country, the meaning for the American Republic, but also for the wider world. Because my argument would be, it's a bigger one, 
we're at a civilizational moment. Every great civilization has a dynamic or an inspiration. And you think none of the great civilizations are around. They've gone. Because there's a moment when the civilization loses touch with what made it. And at that point, you've only got three broad options. Will there be renewal? Will there be a replacement? Or decline? The West is there today, as historians understand it. So we're sitting in luxury tonight and comfort, but America is close to a very important turning point, and so also is the wider West. Well, that, if I remember, is essentially the thesis of the first book, Zero Our America, what you've just said, is it not? No, it's actually the one I'm just writing now. Oh, well, sure it is. But I read it in here, I promise you. Um, it's the, the, the subtitle of Zero Hour America is History's Ultimatum Over Freedom and the Answer We Must Give. So, but I'm saying in that book, you, you make it very clear that we are, as you describe it, at a civilizational moment. There's, there's no denying it that we are at a precipice. Uh, people are trying to process this right now, of course, and you write about this in both books. But... Um, what a, what I was mentioning in my introduction, it was um, in reading your um, book, um, A Free People's Suicide, that I first uh, encountered your, as you, you formulate it, you, you call it the, uh, the golden triangle of freedom, where you describe the connection between faith and virtue and freedom and I had never really understood it before. And what amazed me, Oz, and I know we'll, we'll talk about this, we can't help but talk about it, but what amazed me is that when it's explained, uh, it's obvious that freedom on the American model is really not possible without virtue and without some large uh, uh, Contingent within the culture of faith, it doesn't. It's not possible, and that's something that, in a way, has led us to this civilizational crisis. Is that that idea, which used to be known, I would say, or, or, or somehow accepted? There were always detractors and, and people, but on some level, it was part of the basis of the culture. Obviously, Tocqueville un- understood it, but it, it seems. Since around 1968, when you were talking about 100 cities uh, aflame, that roughly since then, that concept, which you write about in several books, has either evaporated or fallen out of favor or been kicked out of favor. Let me back up, Eric. And people often ask me, why on earth are you interested in America? Well, obviously, this is the world's lead society. It's fascinating, important for you. You're Americans. But, you know, there's a saying, Kipling had a saying, what knows he of England who only England knows? And what struck me when I came here, many Americans don't know their own system. Well, that, I mean, you when know, you talk about, about being no, growing up in China, it struck me because you saw the you've got a horror. Well, you also saw the horror of authoritarian of Marxism. You saw it. Yeah. Um, and it, it does seem clear to me that when, and I've said this many times myself, but that if, if you're blessed to live in America, it's almost impossible for you to have any perspective on what it is that we've had. But let me go further. 
You know, St. Augustine says, how do you understand a nation? The trick is to look at what it loves supremely. Not the population, not the strength of the army, not the GDP. No, they're all important, but not all important. To understand a nation, you look at what it loves supremely. What does America love supremely? No question. Freedom. Now, American freedom is unique. As people say that the bookends of history are authoritarianism, take China, all order, no freedom. And the other bookend, anarchy, all freedom, no order. And the genius of America is an ordered freedom, freedom within the Constitution. Now, where did that come from? It did not come from, with due respect, Greece. (laughs) You know, I... To say if if this if this weren't my event, I would walk out right now. I can't believe I can't believe I've called you friend all these years. And no, it, the funny right, thing is, you know, was, it, democracy listen, came this from Greece. No, listen, I of course I learned this from you, and I know this is true. And it's actually very important that you explain that because so many people are not aware. Of, of, of the reality of what even, you just said. It's quite true. Even currently, everyone's talking about saving democracy. Right. The framers were very wary of democracy. Right. For reasons that the Greeks showed. Ends in mob rule. America was built as a republic. Didn't just mean you don't have a king. In the 17th century, following the Reformation in the 16th, Everyone was fascinated with the discovery of what they called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, what you find in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So the Constitution comes from covenant. The consent of the governed is in Exodus. Separation of powers is in Exodus. America was basically founded as a republic based on the Hebrew Republic with important differences. And people have forgotten that almost entirely. So the present discussion is way, way off base. So, you know, one president talks about make America great again and the current one, restore the soul of America. Neither of them say, what made America great in the first place? And that's important because in the 19th century, when you were similarly divided as we are today, Lincoln addressed the division. We can't be half this, half that, half slave, half free. And he called the nation back to the better angel of the American nature and his convictions of the Declaration, but he really knew the history. And America needs a leader today capable. Lincoln called for a new birth of freedom. It had gone off the rails. America today needs a new, new birth of freedom. But we don't have a national leader calling for that. Well, uh, part of the background, because I want to get to the Sinai Covenant, which you talk about in the the next book, which is so central. It's just dizzying to me, again, to realize it's so central, completely inevitable, and most people are totally unfamiliar with the concept of how the founders were, were building on that idea. There's nowhere else to look for such an idea and yet most Americans are unaware of it. But before we get to that, would you just contrast a little bit the two revolutions, 1776 and 1789, because that forms the backdrop of a lot of what you say. Well, my argument is America, if you put the present crisis in three words, 
revolution, oligarchy, homecoming. And I'll explain the revolution. Revolution is the radical left, and I would say, God forbid. Oligarchy is the one a lot of Americans are not following. The way there's this growing gap, the collapse of the middle class, a gap between the elites and the populists, and so on. And that, you can see a lot of that in the responses to COVID and so on. In other words, America's moving towards an oligarchy, not a democracy. Homecoming, you all know the, the meaning of the American word homecoming, but actually, I'd never heard that word till I came to live here. Everyone, or most people, know the meaning of the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, an about turn. The Hebrew word is that plus another idea. You do an about turn of heart and mind and spirit, and in so doing, you come home to the truth and where you began. That's what America needs today. But let's pick up the revolution one. Everyone realizes how divided we are. But ask people, what's the reason for it? Some say the social media. Some blame the former president. Some say it's the coastals against the heartlanders. And some say it's the nationalists over against the globalists like George Soros. I would argue, though, that the deepest division in America is between those who understand the republic and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution and those who understand it from ideas that came down from the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. So we're not talking about Macron France today. But if you think of the ideas in the last 50 years, radical multiculturalism, postmodernism, the sexual revolution, identity politics, going down the line, the cancel culture, every single one of those is a child of ideas that's come down from the French Revolution. Now, the other mistake Americans make, because people talk of Marxism, Jim Billington, the great librarian of Congress, he pointed out, if you look at the French Revolution, as I said, it only lasted 10 years in France, but like a huge volcanic explosion, the lava flow has flowed out ever since. Three of them. The one almost nobody bothers about here is what's called revolutionary nationalism in the 19th century. Very, very important, but we needn't get into that. The obvious one is revolutionary socialism in the 20th century, designed by Marx in the 19th, communism. That's not what we're facing here. The third one, revolutionary liberationism or cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism or user-friendly Marxism. And that goes back to a gentleman called Antonio Gramsci who sat in jail under Mussolini trying to figure out why Marx didn't have it quite right. And he shifted the ideas of revolution from economics and politics to culture. When the cultural gatekeepers of any society and you can sweep around and win the whole. Now, that's important because it was actually the year I was here, 68. Herbert Marcuse, who was the leader of the movement then at the University of San Diego, he and another radical called for a long march through the institutions. Now, think of a 100 cities burning after Martin Luther King's assassination. The radicals knew far more than 2020. They knew they would not win in the streets. So the long march 
They want to win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, the world they called culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment, and then sweep round and win the whole. And you can see 50 years later how much they have done. But nobody who saw it in the early days would ever have guessed that an area like, say, business would have been woke business or the military would have wokeism. And yet today they have. So that's what I mean by the radical left and revolution. Another revolution. This is not the American revolution. Absolutely different in its source, its ideas of freedom, its all views across the board. And that's what's taking over part of America. And there's no national leader, people taking on this, that, and the other here piecemeal. But in terms of a Lincoln-like vision of the whole. Well, honestly, Oz, and you know this, but these ideas, the, the ideas to really understand ordered freedom uh, and what made our republic from the beginning, as I said, roughly since 68, these ideas have not been taught. So you, you have a vacuum into which cultural Marxism has swept. It, it, it really, we don't have people understanding what is happening and arguing against it very effectively. It's just most people, I think, viscerally know something's wrong, but they're not really able quite to say why, because as we're saying, m most people have lost touch with the founders' ideas, the, all, all of those basic ideas, which I, I want to get to. But that, to me, is why we are at this civilizational no, crisis. Remember, it was the melting pot was crucial. New York knew that. But the public schools were crucial. Because you think, you know, coming into the station yesterday, a pluribus unum. You even have the translation in the hall of you know, Penn Station. Out of many, one. You'd, I know you didn't come to Penn Station. Come on. Was it quite central? Um, but that's, that's an incredible idea. It, the idea that, yes. that collapsed in the late 60s, right. and in came Howard Zinn. And more recently, you've got the Marxist 1619 Project. Yeah. In other words, the central Americanizing, integrating, assimilating, pick your good word, it's gone. And then when you open the southern border and you can have millions of people coming in, and they're not assimilated in any way at all. In other words, citizenship collapses. Now, the essence of the Hebrew Republic, you know, one of the features of the Jewish understanding, every Jew responsible for every Jew. A collective solidarity. And that, of course, is partly behind we the people. America as a republic, you should have citizenship with responsibility of people knowing what they do. It's all collapsed. Well, so this is, just to, to, to uh, be clear, you, you make the case that the founders uh, clearly understood that what they were doing was on this covenant model. In other words, this is not some Christian gloss on, on, on what... It, 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 it's very clear. Um, I want you to talk about that a, a, a little bit, uh, about the idea that, that Franklin and I think Jefferson wanted the, the image of Exodus, of, of the crossing of the Red Sea, to be the central image in, in the, 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 the Great Seal of the United States or whatever it was, that this was utterly central to where they were coming from. And that's completely lost. I mean, I've never 
heard, I never heard that growing up ever anywhere. Well, take some of the fundamental differences. I mean, Madison, separation of powers, checks and balances. His teacher was John Witherspoon, the Scottish clergyman at Princeton. And behind that was the Reformation idea, humans are not perfect. We all go wrong. All power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you have checks and balances. So the Reformation and the American Revolution are profoundly realistic. Whereas if you look at the radical left, it's always utopian. That is an incredibly important difference. You know, you've always got to be aware of the potential for the abuse of power. And the American understanding had that coming out of the Reformation and Exodus. There, there's so much uh, in both these books that I want to try to get to. Part, part of your solution, um, and I, I agree almost violently with this idea, um, is that we have to teach, and we've touched on this, but we have to teach these ideas to every generation. If people don't all know these things, if we don't have a, a cultural sense of this is who we are, this is our story, uh, we can go anywhere. And I've mentioned a couple of times, we have lost that in the last 50 years. But that idea of teaching um, the next generations in your book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, subtitle Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom, you talk about, on the one hand, this idea of covenant, which I want to keep going on, but you also talk about how it was utterly central uh, to the Sinai covenant and to the Jewish people remaining a people that they would teach this. This was at the very center of everything, that they knew if we do not teach these ideas over and over and over, the whole thing evaporates. And it seems to me that that's where we are here. But The last president who said that again and again was President Reagan. You know, you're always one generation away from losing it. But put it in Jewish terms, as our Jewish friends say wonderfully. What did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free after 400 years of slavery. He never mentions freedom. They're going to the promised land of milk and honey. You know what the land means to the Jews. He never mentions it. What does Moses talk about three times? Children. Why? The story you tell to your children is the key to identity and the key to continuity. So if you ever fail in the transmission, it breaks down. Well, in, uh, in your book, um, A Free People's Suicide, you talk there and in one of these books as well about Lincoln's famous speech to the Springfield Young Men's Lyceum. He was about 28 years old. And he remarkably... Uh, so close, really, to the beginning of our founding, when you, from, from our perspective. But that Lincoln, as a young man, makes the case um, that we're walking around here. The, he makes the case that uh, if we're going to die, it, it will be by our own hand. That, that if we forget, if we lose touch with the founding vision, uh, and, and so on. So talk about that a little bit, because the, the way Lincoln puts it, it's actually amazing to me. I'll never forget when I read it in your book the first time, the idea that as such a very young man, he understood this 
really on, a, on an extraordinary level. It's, uh, when you read that, you think, well, of, of course he would become president. But mm-hmm. um, as a nation of freedmen, either we will live free for all time or die by suicide. That's Lincoln. Yeah. So my book title, people say, aren't you rather pessimistic for free people? So no, it's Lincoln. And he understood the challenge of freedom. It has to be transmitted in every generation like a living torch or it dies. You know, what struck me is, you know, you look at the sort of basics of America. Some of them are very obvious. You, you win freedom. That's the revolution. You order freedom. That's the genius of the Constitution, 1787. But the framers realized the third challenge is the real one, sustaining freedom. The revolution didn't take very long. The Constitution took longer, but not all that long. Sustaining freedom, you're supposed to be doing it today. How are you supposed to do it? Well, Americans hardly discuss that. And I was very intrigued in looking at the framers because that's where the golden triangle came in. That's not their term. That was my term. But it was their idea to sustain freedom from generation to generation. Freedom requires virtue. Now, the word virtue is out of fashion today. But for the framers, virtue was things like honesty, loyalty, patriotism. And as you know from the Greek, and this is where I love the Greeks, virtues were like, say, piano playing. They're not matters of goody-goodiness. You have to learn to be honest and learn to be patriotic and so on. Over time, a habit of the heart, as your great Greeks put it. So the, so the Greeks didn't have a, a Rousseauian view that... Not at all. Yeah, and so that's that's interesting. Training. That you have to learn these things and teach these things. Our friend Tom Wright says you can put a three-year-old in front of a keyboard and plonk, 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 make a horrendous noise. Is that freedom? Yes, chaotic freedom. But listen to a Rubenstein, one of the best pianists, and you think of far more than 10,000 hours principle, and then you play freely, and that's freedom. And that's virtue. Freedom requires virtue. People schooled in the habit of the various things that make up freedom. Then virtue of any sort requires some faith. It's got to be grounded. But then faith of any sort requires freedom, freedom of conscience. And rather like the recycling triangle that goes round and round, freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom, which requires virtue, and so on. Terribly simple. All the framers taught it. Some of them were very men of orthodox faith. Others, like uh, Jefferson, was basically a deist, and Tom Paine, beyond that. But they all taught the Golden Triangle. Well, see, that, that's what's so amazing to me. And again, when I read your book, A Free People's Suicide, and subsequently, what is, what is so astonishing to me is that none of the founders could even conceive of freedom apart from virtue and some kind of faith. There was no, you know, it's really like somebody discovering something in science, and you say, aha, and and there it was. And then they understood, of course, that 
there's the great irony and the paradox, which again I've learned from you, is that if freedom requires virtue, uh, virtue requires to have some kind of faith so that you will be virtuous, so that you'll take the trouble to be virtuous. You're free not to be, but you choose to be. Uh, and then, of course, uh, faith requires freedom because if the faith is coerced, then it's no real faith. And so the, the, the idea that the founders all understood this, I mean, I talk about this many places where I go, and, and I'm just amazed that there is no other way. They all understood this. This was not the Christian founders understood this. No, every one of the founders understood this idea. So you can't, you can't quibble with the idea because it's, it's unless you want to throw out the founders completely, which of course uh, cultural Marxists would want to do. But the point is that they all understood this. You beautifully formulate it with the term the golden triangle of freedom. But it's something that seems to have carried on through the decades uh, and the centuries, but that has been lost. When you mention virtue, Thrown out. people sneer at virtue. All three legs are a challenge today. Well, but just, just the idea virtue. of virtue, when you say freedom requires virtue, virtue, obviously, already in the 60s, people are sneering at the concept virtue. of virtue, but... but the founders, every one of them knew that virtue is the only way for us to have freedom. So the idea that we've, it's like a, like a formula, like the formula's been lost, uh, and we have to re-educate people on this, or at least try to reason with them and say, can you figure out any other way to be free? And that's really what you do in these books, is, is, is you help make the case that if you're talking about the freedom of a three-year-old to pound the keyboard, that's not the freedom we have in mind. Um, and so you, you talk about the two. I think at the end of every chapter, let, let me read this, because at the end of every chapter of the Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith in the Future of Freedom, you write, and this is again at the end of every chapter, America cannot endure permanently half 1776 and half 1789. The compromises, contradictions, hypocrisies, inequities, and evils have built up unaddressed. The grapes of wrath have ripened again, and the choice before America is plain. Either America goes forward best by going back first, or America is about to reap a future in which the worst will once again be the corruption of the best. So it's like the wheat and tares have grown up together, but we're living at a moment when the tares seem to be taking over. Uh, I mean, Eric, you've covered Germany in the 30s so wonderfully. Um, my beloved Jenny, she has often said in the last 10, 15 years, what must it have been like for that slow, steady decline and rise? And why didn't more people stand up when they could have done? We are at that place today. And every so often you got, I mean, in the last couple of weeks, that Balenciaga thing. That was absolutely vile. Now, cooked up by someone, presumably a few blocks from where we are now, here in Manhattan. It was just one flashing outburst of vile decadence worthy of Weimar and some of the worst they saw there in the 1920s and 30s. It's happening. And the idea that the worst is the corruption of the best. You think of the most cultured, civilized, educated country in the world, Germany. 
And here we have an incredible country shaped by so much of the gifts of freedom. And yet at point after point, not everywhere, you see these flashes open up and you look in the decadence is on the way here. This is why, I mean, as you know, I'm I'm not American. I'm an incredible admirer of your system at its best. I think it is the greatest political ordering of freedom the world has ever seen. But your generation is squandering it in a generation or two. Sometimes it makes me angry. Sometimes it makes me almost weep. It, it, hardly a day, as Jenny knows, we don't wake up stirred by what's happening. And many people don't see it. Or they just see problem here, problem there, piecemeal. And we live, we live in McLean, down the road from the CIA. Well, our good friend, uh, Glenn Youngkin, is now our governor in Virginia. Thank God. But he came in through the parents in Loudoun County and the outburst of the understanding of critical race theory. What was staggering is many people had never heard of that till that controversy. And then when they did hear about it, they only traced it back to Derrick Bell at the Harvard Law School. There's a classic example. The sexual revolution goes back to the same place in Paris as the political revolution, the Palais Royal. And if you read the architects, for example, in the 1920s, the man who gave us the term sexual revolution is Wilhelm Reich. And a little paperback, you can easily read it today. He sets it all out, what they're trying to do. So he says quite openly, we have two enemies. One, the Christian church, and two, parents. 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 So he says, we will get round parents by sidelining them with sex education at three and four. Now, many Americans have just discovered parental rights and this sort of thing in the last couple of years following Loudoun County. And we should have been warned. It's all there. They, well, they, I mean, they wrote out be, exactly what they were doing. To be fair, the, this is the trickle-down effect in culture. In other words, we know that uh, there have always been certain elites who were aware of these things. But for these things, for these ideas to find their way into the culture, it took decades, in this case, uh, more than mere decades. But... Uh, Again, you, you write about it in the Magna Carta of Humanity that m- most of us have some kind of idealized idea of the French Revolution. But the anti-clericalism, to use a nice word, the, the sort of very, very vicious uh, hatred of people of faith, uh, it's, it's actually remarkable to me that we're talking about something that happened over 200 years ago. But the, but the animus against... Faith, and not just faith, but in other words, it wasn't just uh, against hypocrisy or something like that, but but against the very ideas uh, that that uh, a lot of people would associate with faith. Um, the the the, the I, I'm trying to remember where you describe it, but in other words, the their idea, the French idea uh, of liberty, it it was really wrapped up with sexual license from the beginning. And, of course, it went wrong pretty quickly. But, again, those ideas, they take a long time to to trickle down. It took a long time before Wilhelm Reich's idea of, in America, subverting, uh, you know, trying to 
to steal children from their parents. That effectively did not happen uh, in, in a very serious way until very recently. Yeah, because they couldn't see the way to doing it right. until recently. Right. But now the barriers are falling and they're doing worse and worse things if they can. But I think for those of us who are people of faith, and I certainly am, we've got to say with the French Revolution, we deserved it. I always quote Diderot, the encyclopedist, whose ideas were picked up by the Jacobins in the streets. And Diderot said famously, we will never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. In other words, if you go back to Louis XIV, or 13th, 14th, 15th, the French church and state, the throne and the altar, were in collusion, both totally corrupt and both incredibly oppressive. And anyone who cared for freedom and justice threw off both of them. In other words, tragically, European secularism, its major reason is a revulsion against the corruption and the oppression of the state churches. And of course, same thing happened in Russia. Now that's tragic. The First Amendment stopped that happening here because faith was voluntary. Well, I mean, let's talk about that because that's, to me, the genius of the founders. And genius is not... Uh, it's not the wrong word. It's well, that was that went back earlier in the founders. Pardon Religious me? freedom came from the beginning. In other words, they knew in Europe you had coercion, oppression, and the Reformation rediscovered freedom of conscience. You had to let every person free to obey the dictates of their conscience. Magnificent idea. Well, it's an extraordinary idea, and it gave us America, uh, among other things. But maybe let's skip back to Tocqueville, because we can all, or most of us, can relate to the idea of a corrupt church, of a church that is allied with power, that is on some level no different than uh, an authoritarian state. And that's, of course, what the in the, in the French Revolution, that's what gave them this hatred um, of the church. So... When Tocqueville comes here some decades later, he, he seems to be astonished that the, the churches here bolster freedom and freedom is not at war with, with the churches. Um, when he came here, do you really think that he had no idea of this? Because, again, if you're familiar with American history, you, you know this was, this was here from the beginning, from before the beginning, that that's why many people came here from Europe was to escape authoritarian churches and states allied with churches. But do you, do you think, do you get the idea that Tocqueville really was surprised by, by this? Because it's a revolutionary idea in history. But I guess I, sometimes I think that by 1820-something that the thinking people in, in Europe would have been aware of this. I don't think they were. I think he, nine months traveling all around the place, he really saw how it touched people on the ground and that would have been shatteringly different. You know, I love the little phrase, contrast is the mother of clarity. Wait, now, where does it, you, you say that very often and in your writings and in your speeches. Where is that from? From you. Yes. But you're, but you're, you're English, so you can't admit it. He's so humble. 
Is that right? Is that you? Did you? Are you? Is that your point? Contrast is the mother of clarity. Whenever you see a strong contrast, I got the idea from the Renaissance art. Vasari loved Michelangelo more than Leonardo, because Leonardo's subtly merging hues and colors and so on, well, there's Michelangelo, bold and contrasting and graphic and, and so on. And, and the same is true intellectually, I think. In other words, people who know only one thing don't know it. What knows he of England who only England knows? You understand America when you've been outside America and you see how the Chinese behave or the Iranians behave or whatever. You suddenly come back and, you know, many, many times, this is stupid in a way, seen America, come to Europe and really despise, say, hamburgers and Cokes. But after three or four months of traveling around the world, to take a Coke is almost sacramental. (laughs) No, I'm serious. They, They take a Coke... You know, when I left China as a nine-year-old, it was a perilous journey, and the final was a 200-yard bridge across from China into Hong Kong, a rather rickety old bridge, and you had to walk across with your baggage. And when we got to the Hong Kong side, the Bobby, the London policeman, handed everyone a Coke. It was the symbol of freedom. Now you are free. Now, that would be corny here in America where you can just go down. But when you've been outside, it, that's a very basic thing. But a far more important level, when you see countries that don't have separation of church and state, that don't respect conscience, etc., 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 you suddenly realize, my goodness, what we've got here is incredible, and we're losing it. Well, um, I, <clears throat> because my parents came from Europe to this, uh, to this island... Uh, in the in the fifties, uh, they effortlessly communicated to me that what we have here in America is not normal. This is a tremendous uh, a gift and a rarity. My mother, coming from East Germany, so she tasted uh, Soviet Marxism before she left, and my father, coming from Greece, where they just had had the civil war with the communists, and so, in a way, I had a perspective that a lot of my classmates. Uh, with whom I grew up, did, did not have. And it seems to me now, as I travel around the country, I'm, I'm often bumping into people who are, whether from Eastern Europe or from Cuba, they have a keen sense of what is happening now that m- many Americans don't quite. I, I think people are beginning to get it. But if you've been there, if you've experienced it as you did, um, it... Uh, Contrast is the mother of clarity, as a friend of mine often says. Um, Oz, talk for a moment. uh, In one of these books, I can't remember which, you talk about the horror of uh, being in China during this time, of losing your brothers, of your parents' faith in the midst of that hell. Just talk for a moment about that, because it's it's important, uh, I think. Well, no great credit to me. I was very small in the famine. I was three. So everything I know, I've heard others telling me. But as I said, five million died in three months. So there was almost no food. My mother was a surgeon. There was no medicine. There was cannibalism. There were people selling their children for an evening meal. 
People would go out into the fields and couples would embrace and just lie there and die. And five dead bodies all over the place. And then we went to the horror of the reign of terror under Mao. And it really was terrifying. But I would just say, uh, and Jenny knows my parents too. They've both gone to heaven now since. Never once did I ever see them waver in their faith. And the idea, as my dad used to put it, God is greater than all. He can be trusted in all situations. Have faith in God. Have no fear. And I just watched him. I was only nine then. But I saw them. I also saw the courage of Christians. So we went to church, and I was a little kid, of course, and the sermons from half an hour, they go on for an hour, and then... They began to go on for an hour and a half. And I said to my dad, what is this? This is so boring. (laughs) He said, remember, the communists are coming. And in a year or two, they'll have no teaching. And they'll have no fellowship. So they're just drinking up everything they can get. And then I remember the first day my dad came back shaken. He'd been up on the city walls, great old city walls in Nanking. And he'd seen a crowd going out. And he, he said, what's that? And that was the first batch going off to their execution. So the communists strung the whole town with loudspeakers in the lampposts and so on. And there were trials in the morning and executions in the afternoon. So the fear was palpable. And if you saw a friend, it was more than the friend's life was worth to recognize that he knew me. You know, they'd be carted off too or accused of who knows what. So the reign of terror because you were foreigners. We were foreigners and, and Christians. If we went out in the streets, you know, to a shop or whatever, it'd be instant crowd, death to the blue-eyed foreign devils. No, so fear was very, very palpable. And people talked about, you know, 9-11 and so on. That was one day. But can you imagine two years and you weren't sure if your neighbors were informing on you or whatever? Fear was incredible. Well, I, I don't know if we've touched on it, but it does seem to me that a great part of how we, we've come to this crisis in America is because of our prosperity, um, because we've been really untouched um, by anything along the lines of the, the, the trials that you're, you're talking about. And I think, I think for many Americans, it's just inconceivable, maybe in the way that it was inconceivable for many Germans to have an idea of where things might go because things had been good for so long that it was not really within their imagination to think that if I don't do this or if I do that, it might lead in that direction. It seemed inconceivable. I mean, I argue that it it seemed inconceivable to the Germans, which is why they didn't speak up in time. But it strikes me that we're there now in America, that, that... most Americans, because they haven't been through anything like what you're describing or what my mother and father lived through, they don't imagine that it's possible. That, 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 in other words, prosperity has, been, um, has made us blinkered and lazy. But I think we need to look at all the different factors which are a menace. 
So you mentioned prosperity. That leads to a complacency and a blindness, self-satisfaction. But that's relatively minor. You add things we talked about earlier, like postmodernism. There is no truth with God dead. No truth. Everything is now power. Well, America's culture of lying and deception has got very, very advanced. And I, I'm, no names, but I think of congressmen and senators who just lie routinely in Washington. I mean, it's natural as breathing now in the post. Well, that's incredibly dangerous. Then you think of revelations like we've seen with Musk showing us the Twitter revelations and so on recently. In, in other words, you trace a lot of these things together. The impact of postmodernism, the death of post-truth, what the economists call the post-truth world, is absolutely deadly to freedom. But one of my uh, current things, Rabbi Sachs, whom I greatly admired, he says, everyone's talking about climate change. The real problem in the West is cultural climate change. And he traces some of that, and uh, that is much more deadly. You know, um, the second best commentator, you mentioned Tocqueville, he's the greatest foreign commentator. The second best is Lord James Bryce, Queen Victoria's ambassador to America, about 1900. He's got an incredible passage. He says, in Europe, you can have decline, but you always have, this is 1900, you always have something of tradition, and something of social cohesion. People in small villages, small towns, they see it holds you together like an anchor, a break, however much the decline goes on. Whereas he said in America, you don't have any of that. You have so much freedom, so much hum- mobility. You have no tradition, he really. He said this in 1900. 1900. And then he said, and here's the point, he said only one thing holds America together because of the freedom, mobility, and so on. And that is religion. And he said, of course, it's inconceivable that religion would ever decline in America. But here's the point. He said, if it ever should decline, now I'm quoting, you would have the completest revolution of all. What else is holding Americans together? Without truth and all that that means for meaning, and without the ties that give you the social bonds. And, you know, for instance, I look at the discussion of the school murders. They're tragic. But President Biden, Obama, oh, guns, guns, guns. Guns are the how, they're not the why. And to any foreigner, it's very obvious, every massacre has a gun, of course. But what's really more important, every massacre has a loner. And you look into what's made these loners, you see this cultural climate change. America's unraveling in deep ways that are incredibly damaging to freedom and to human dignity and so on. And I think we've got to start looking at some of the factors that are really shaping these things and seeing how, you know, in my family, in our neighborhood, my place of work, how are we living a different way and resisting these and that's the challenge. We've got to be resistant people against the tide. I want to go back to, uh, in, in the Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's revolutionary faith and the future of freedom, um, you, you make the case 
that the biblical book of Exodus is a classical text that ought to stand with the greatest classical. Plato's Republic. Pardon me? Plato's Republic. Great text. You're just saying that because I'm Greek and no, you, I'm you not. insulted me before. <laughs> um, Everyone with Politics 101 looks at but, the Republic, and they should do. But the point is we're familiar with those classics. We're, we're familiar with uh, Plato's Republic. But to think of the book of Exodus as a classical text in that mold, I'd, I'd never read that before. I'd never heard that before. Of course, I read it in your book. And it struck me as... Um, an extraordinary observation, really, because uh, part of the, the case you, you make in the book is how we have taken Exodus for granted and how it is unavoidably central to everything. When we talk about freedom, there's no way, ultimately, to talk about the kind of freedom we're talking about without Exodus. But I've really not heard anyone... Uh, talk about that before. So say more about that because I think it is, you know, it's a revolutionary observation and also, unfortunately, extremely important at this moment. Well, go back to political science. I mean, you Greeks gave us wonderfully monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, and then the three corrupt forms. But Jewish scholars said, yes, that's looking at governments. You should also look at societies, and the three types of society. You have organic societies, uh, a Scottish clan linked by blood and kinship, African tribe or a country like Lebanon, very organic societies. Then the main type of societies is hierarchical, with a system of power under coercion, empires, kingdoms, militaries, and so on, the Roman Empire. Then you've got the rare one, covenantal, linked by a common voluntary binding agreement. And the three great ones are the Jews, the first one, and then the Swiss and the Americans. And you have a very, very different system coming out of that. But just think of the influence of Exodus. I mean, any of you saw Hamilton, uh, or, or any of you know your history, you, when... The British troops were ordered to surrender at Yorktown, 1791. They were ordered to play the tune... 81. 91. When the British troops were ordered to surrender at Yorktown... 1791. October. That's not possible. Peter, is that not right? That's not possible, <laughs> sir. All right, no, sir. The, the, the Constitution came about in 87. Yeah, no, but... Uh, yeah. All right. Anyway, I finally got one right. Um, <laughs> no, but in, in any event, of course, they we were know what ordered you mean. to play the tune. The world turned right. upside down. Right. That ballad came from the English Revolution, and it came from Exodus. And the idea was very simple: God creates order, humans create disorder, so God works into a disordered world to turn it the right way up again. And revolution is God's way of turning the world the right way up. That was the English Revolution. So both the English Revolution and the American had their roots in Exodus, whereas the French and the Russian and the Chinese had their roots in an anti-religious expression. They were very, very different. Or just take the influence of Exodus on, you know, take the African-Americans, let my people go. Go down Moses. So you mentioned Jefferson and... Uh, 
and uh, Franklin. They were not the greatest of the founders in terms of their passion of faith. But both of them saw Exodus as a symbol. Oliver Cromwell said Exodus was the direct parallel to what he was trying to do. Exodus, or look at the Latin American situation. Exodus, no book has put more of a stamp on freedom down the centuries than Exodus. Well, it's unavoidably true, but as I say, we, we live in a culture that is perfectly ignorant of that idea. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be ignorant of our own history and of recent history, but it's another thing to be ignorant of the, that thing and that story that shaped all future going forward, which is, which is what we're talking about now. Well, we've lost history. History is something you can look up in your smartphone when you want to settle a date. All right, Yorktown, when was it? October, whatever. You know. <laughs> that's history. But that's not real history. Right. We, need, we need to have a seasoned understanding of history and the great ideas that have shaped us. It's all about identity and continuity. Well, you talk about that uh, with regard to the, the Jews understood this as a fundamental, as a non-negotiable. Uh, and I think someplace in the book you talk about, you know, the, the Egyptians built pyramids and others built other things. The Romans built the Colosseum. But, but, and you built the Parthenon. And we built the Parthenon. And, uh, but you say, but the Jews built schools. They understood. Well, that's Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs. Yeah. Well, in the book, you will quote him so much and he is uh he's a tr- he was a treasure uh and i'm glad that you you quote him so much in the book but that's it's such a central idea that we are now um we're in arrears we we have a few uh generations really that have not been taught these things and so we're we're at a point where if we don't teach them and relearn them ourselves it all goes away in other words, every newborn American or every arrival at Ellis Island or the southern border, they have to know. So Sam Huntington says it's still relatively easy to become an American. In other words, get your naturalization papers one way or another. It's increasingly difficult to know what it is to be American. That's the tragedy. And you think of the open border, that's a disaster for citizenship. Well, I mean, I referenced my my parents. When they came here in the 50s, they had to learn whatever one had to learn in those days to become an American citizen, which they wanted to do, and by God's grace, they were able to do that. But it, it wasn't just, you know, you know, do you want to be an American citizen, yes or no? They had to pass tests and so on. That idea, again, um, somebody uses the term um, cultural confidence. We seem to have lost cultural confidence because if you believe in these ideas, you feel happy to pass them on. You feel happy to share them with strangers. Um, but at some point, and again, I, I, to some extent we could point to the 60s, the, the idea that these ideas are good ideas and beautiful ideas uh, and that we must teach them it fell out of favor, and we kind of flip over to the Howard Zinn version of America, which is now the 1619 Project, which is so preposterously negative 
that it, it's, it's almost unbelievable that anybody could bear to, to think but remember, that that's the true story. But remember, this is my argument in the book I'm writing now. Secularism, growing up in Europe in the 18th century, tried to knock out the Christian faith as the inspiration for the West, but it wanted to lead the West. It believed in the West. Whereas if you look at the current ideologies, especially the radical left and the sexual revolution, they're not only against the Christian faith, they are against the West. In other words, you've got ideas around now that are extremely radical. If they prevail, this is the end. So you say we've lost cultural confidence. We have. But remember, cultural confidence was knocked out quite deliberately as a means of revolutionary subversion. So the West is genocidal and misogynist and homophobic and racist and all. That's quite deliberate undermining of everything Western. At some point uh, in this book, you also talk about how the the idea uh, that we first see in the French Revolution uh, and that becomes cultural Marxism... It, that these are ultimately corrosive and negative, that they don't propose any positive alternative. Say a little bit about that, because that's, to me, what's so fascinating is that nobody seems to talk about what, what kind of world would we build if we were to tear down everything. Well, I often just put it very simply. If you look at all the revolutionary left and the radical left, put it simply, their revolutions never succeed and their oppressions never end. In other words, go back to, say, Marx and so on. The revolution in the France didn't succeed. So the 19th century Marxists, they were hung up on what they called total revolution. The French Revolution didn't go far enough. You want a total revolution. And they had ideas like that. But if you look at all the strains in every different country... The revolutions have never succeeded, and the oppressions have never ended. So, you know, I I worked for a while for the BBC. The idea that you have American journalists who are favoring censorship, that's an appalling idea for anyone who loved journalism in the past, and routine in certain circles now. Things are happening which are monstrous. And it's time to put a stop to them. Well, that's why we're here. Um, the I am uh, quietly and cautiously hopeful because it seems to me that there's still enough uh, freedom left um, for people to wake up uh, and to do something. Um, and I guess I see that the, the madness that we have seen uh, unfurling in the last, just in the last few years, in a way, for many people, it's been a wake-up call. Obviously, your friend Glenn Youngkin wouldn't have been elected to the governorship of Virginia uh, if uh, Terry McAuliffe had not preposterously given voice to the insane idea that parents ought not to have any say in their children's education. Um, And so we have to say thank you, Mr. McAuliffe, uh, and thank you to those others who are, it seems, almost against their own better judgment, saying the things that uh, 10 years ago they they would maybe would have thought 
but they would have had the wisdom not to say it. It seems to me that by saying these things and by, uh, by with Balenciaga doing uh, what it did and with, with all of these things in some way, I am, I'm cautiously optimistic that there are people waking up now who wouldn't have uh, awakened if, if these things hadn't happened or if these things hadn't been said. So in some ways, the horror uh, can be... But let me add one thing, Eric. Because of my experience of Marxism in Europe and as a boy, I'm pretty hard on the left. And a lot of people, including Christian friends, they say to me, well, surely the left is bad and the right is bad. They're both as bad as each other. And there's a lot of the right that is really ugly and extreme and vile. No question. But there's a very simple reason why the left is far more dangerous. In two words, social location. In other words, where are they powerful? So the center of the left's ideas come from the colleges. There's nothing anywhere right. There are a few conservatives beleaguered. But the idea of wokeism is very strong. And you go through the press and media. You go through the television channels and so on. Or you go through the intelligence community. There's no question. Just looked at where are they powerful. The left is far more dangerous Although, no question, the right is ugly and evil if it had its way. Well, I will quibble you with you about that tomorrow on my radio program because there's a lot to be said there, actually. But the point, of course, stands. Um, I think uh, part of where we are as well is that there was a time in this country when even if people weren't consciously aware or, or couldn't themselves explain some of the things we're talking about or that you talk about in these books, there was a, a tradition in the country that supported many of these ideas. So that even if people weren't conscious of them, explicitly conscious, they nonetheless saw when something would go wrong or, 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 or saw when something was going off the rails. Um, and that, uh, that to me is what's changed in a sense, that we don't have that ballast, kind of a cultural ballast. So I, I think w- what you say in the book, we've just got a minute, uh, a few minutes left, but is that we need not just, I, I think um, you, you talk about how it's wonderful that, uh, you know, Hamilton was on Broadway and that, you know, uh, people are writing biographies of, of Lincoln and, and, and others and Adams, but but those are just pieces of the story, and we need uh, we need to make the larger case. Some of the, some of the cases that you're making in these books, that if we don't make the larger case to the culture, to the nation, um, we we can't we can't get out of the death spiral. Mm-hmm. And Jenny and I, are, you know, we call constantly in Washington, where is the Lincoln? You know, leaders define reality, as Max Dupree used to put it. My first prime minister is Winston Churchill, whom I had the privilege of meeting as a teenager. Always, we listen to his speeches repeatedly. Incredible sense of history. Where is the Lincoln who will address, you know, we've got lots of good men and women, but there's no Lincoln at the moment addressing the nation and calling it back. I think that, again, the point is, is, is central, that we have to... Uh, be able to frame these things, and and it's it's why um, as we run out of time here, uh, it's why Oz, I'm so grateful 
for you because in your books, that's exactly what you've done. Uh, you've done it uh, in, in our limited time tonight. Um, and, and you've helped people like me uh, frame these things and recognize them. Uh, so I, wherever I go, I talk about these things uh, and uh, I've, I've written about them because of you. So um, I want to, uh, as we close here, encourage people um, to read at least these two books of Oz uh, Guinnesses. They are unfortunately extremely important. I wish that weren't the case, but they happen to be extremely important for where we are now. Um, and so, Oz, I want to thank you uh not just for making Socrates in the City possible and for being here tonight, but for making much of what I've done in my life possible uh, and uh, for giving me hope uh, amidst um, the difficulties. So as we close, um, maybe uh, just a round of applause for my friend and hero, Oz Guinness. Thank you. Thank you.